Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and welcome to our webinar, The Changeable Burden That Regulation Is About to Lay on Digital Asset Custodians. That rather clumsy title reflects the fact that digital asset custody is about to be regulated rather more aggressively than it has been to date, but almost certainly not in quite the same way in every jurisdiction that matters. We see this already in the way different jurisdictions have approached making what the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, calls virtual asset service providers, or VASPs, uh, comply with the anti-money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism and sanctions screening obligations, which were laid on everybody uh, in the digital assets industry way back in 2018. As a FATF report uh, last summer disclosed, just 11 out of 98 jurisdictions which uh, uh, were surveyed have actually even started uh, enforcement and supervisory measures uh, on money laundering and sanction screening. Now we have regulators in the United States telling digital asset custodians they must put client assets on the balance sheet. And their counterparts in the European Union are clearly thinking in a similar but slightly different way by asking digital asset custodians to accept full liability for any customer losses of digital assets. Now, those measures were decided long before FTX fell over, but that event has given retail investors at least a very sharp reminder of the need for independent, segregated custody of their digital assets. Institutional investors, of course, knew that already. Uh, a recent survey of asset managers, asset owners, and hedge funds by Sellant on behalf of BNY Mellon found 70% of respondents agreeing that their trading of crypto assets, whatever that means, would increase if they could custody them with a recognized, highly rated financial institution. And even more of them, 91%, are interested in investing in tokenized assets. In other words, safe custody is the key to making a success of those progeny of the cryptocurrency revolution, namely security tokens and fund tokens. At Future of Finance, uh, we're conducting a survey of digital asset custodians, and it's already found uh, more than 100 suppliers of the requisite digital asset custody services. They range enormously in terms of size, structure, services provided, techniques, geography, target clients, capital strength, and so on. But especially they vary in terms of their regulatory status. Now, our purpose in that survey is to categorize the many different types of provider of digital asset custody services to understand what different types of investors should look for in a digital asset custodian, to grasp the unusual nature of the risks those digital assets represent, and to explain how digital asset custodians manage and mitigate those risks. Now that will take time, but we can see already that less than one in 20 of those 100 providers we've found is actually an established, fully regulated and well-capitalized custodian bank. So whatever regulators want in this area, most digital asset custodians in business today are likely to lack the financial strength to meet a regulatory obligation uh, if one is laid upon them to make investors whole in the event of a loss above a certain size. Yet almost all of those uh, non-bank digital asset custodians are regulated in some way. So the question is, are these moves by regulators to require custodians to protect investors without limit, a cunning plan to drive the custody of digital assets into the arms of regulated banks? If it is, might the plan backfire and actually drive regulated custodian banks out of the digital asset custody business? Either way, in the very week that BlackRock CEO Larry Fink attracted a lot of attention by declaring that the next generation for markets, the next generation for securities will be tokenization of securities, the future success and the future growth 
of the digital asset markets might just be being put at risk by some ill thought out regulatory moves. Now there's always a case for regulatory competition and perhaps especially so in an innovative field such as digital assets. But if digital assets become an become uh, are to become uh, an institutional industry on a global scale in the near term, I suspect it would help custodians to provide a good service at a reasonable price if there was some degree of regulatory convergence between the leading financial jurisdictions. Now, to help us explore this topic, uh, we're joined by four experts in the field. Jack McDonald is CEO at Standard Custody and Trust Company, a polysign subsidiary that provides institutional grade custody for digital assets. Jack is a former president and CEO of Conifer Group, the fund administration business and prime brokerage business later sold to SS&C and Cowan Group, respectively. Prior to Conifer, Jack held senior roles with Schroders and UBS. Yannick Sherell is Chief Compliance Officer and Money Laundering Reporting Officer at Zodia Custody, another institutional grade digital asset custody service provided in this case by Standard Chartered Bank in association with Northern Trust. Yannick joined Zodia in June uh, this year after holding a variety of compliance roles at Standard Chartered and BNP Paribas. Barney Reynolds is Global Head of Shearman and Sterling's Financial Services Industry Group, which advises financial institutions and infrastructures, governments and public bodies, including on financial markets regulation. Elizabeth Matthew is the Head of Growth and Partnerships for MetaMask Institutional. In this role, she's focused on solving how to connect every organization on the planet to Web3 in a safe, secure and compliant way. Prior to joining Consensus, uh, Elizabeth spent nine years in fixed income sales, trading and structuring with Lehman Brothers and JP Morgan. As always, in addition to our panelists, we have you as well, our audience, and all five of us encourage everybody watching or listening to submit questions and comments throughout this webinar by using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the Zoom screen. I won't be saving those uh, questions and comments up to the end, but we'll be putting them to the panelists as we go along. So you uh, can be an integral part of this discussion right from the outset. But we're going to begin with a short presentation by Barney Reynolds of Shearman and Sterling on the licensing of digital asset custodians in four major jurisdictions uh, to give us an idea of, of what uh, obligations those licenses entail those custodians in meeting. Barney, I'd like to, to hand over to you to begin your presentation. Thank you, Dominic. Um, so this is just a very brief overview of where we are, and the answer is there's not much um, uh, regulation uh, specific to crypto in, uh, in, in the world, um, in, in the major jurisdictions at the moment. Um, starting with the UK, um, Dominic already mentioned that um, uh, there's a money laundering uh, regime applicable to crypto asset businesses um, in most places in the world now. Um, the UK is no exception, so I'll just cover this point in the context of the UK. Um, in the UK, there are some regulations which essentially um, ensure uh, that, that uh, crypto asset businesses, including custodian wallet providers, fall within the um, uh, money laundering uh, regime and have to re register with the FCA prior to providing services. Some businesses have been turned down uh, for not meeting the requisite standards on that. There's also um, a notification um, requirement and a power for the FCA to object uh, to um, the acquisition of 25% or more of um, such a business. 
As things stand in the general regulatory context, um, the Financial Services and Markets Act, uh, through its regulated activities law order, um, provides for um, a regulatory regime for traditional um, financial assets, um, for which you know um, a custody license is required if wants to hold them. In the crypto context, um, the uh, forthcoming Financial Services and Markets Act, and currently a bill uh, going through, just finished third reading in the House of Commons, um, is going through Parliament, is going to provide for a framework uh, to be developed for um, real um, sort of custodian wallet providers and crypto custodians. Uh, and so it allows the Treasury new powers to make provision for the regulation of uh, digital settlement asset service providers. Um, essentially sort of adding to the regime already in the regulated activities order, which is a sort of uh, statutory instrument uh, previously already made by the Treasury uh, that I've mentioned. Um, the, or tre the Treasury also um, allowed to, or empowered to establish an FCA authorization and supervision regime for payment services provided in respect to digital assets, and it's intended to capture issues of stable coins used for payments uh, and others providing related services such as wallet providers and custodians. Uh, and that is um, in accordance with an international um, agreement at CBNOS IOSCO, uh, which basically, um, where basically the major states agreed that systemic stable coins should be some subject to some form of payment type regulation. We go on to the next slide. Uh, in the EU, we have uh, the Markets in Crypto Assets Regulation, MICA, uh, which is due to come into force uh, in the first quarter of 2023, uh, but with the licensing provisions not coming into effect um, for a further 18 months after that. And the way that's constructed is to establish a licensing and supervisory regime for the provision of crypto asset services, including the custody administration of crypto assets on behalf of third parties, a CASP, uh, as one might term it, authorised under MICA, uh, has to have a registered office in the EU member state. That's a sort of um, magnetic uh, pool set of provisions designed to pull business into the EU in crypto uh, business. Uh, but um, for those familiar with the EU regime from, from MIFID II, the familiar reverse solicitation carve-outs, um, which is consistent with the EU treaties and international practice where EU customers are allowed to reach out from under the umbrella of EU law and MICA and operate solely under the regulatory protections of the service providers such as they are from wherever in the world. Um, there isn't um, an equivalence regime um, for uh, third-party country um, uh, service providers, uh, for those familiar with that concept, which would have allowed um, the recognition of uh, equivalent regimes elsewhere and the access uh, beyond reverse solicitation from, from elsewhere in the world. Um, significant CASPs, um, i.e. ones with over 15 million active users, basically have to notify their competent authority of that fact. And the competent authority this is an internal governance matter of the EU. Um, updates ESMA and ESMA sort of effectively coordinates as it's empowered to do across the member state member regulators uh, on that front. Uh, next slide. In the US, um, just looking at the OCC, Fed and the FDIC, 
Um, the OCC has dealt with um, cryptocurrency custody services through interpretive letters, um, essentially uh, saying that the holding of unique cryptographic keys associated with a cryptocurrency is a form of traditional banking activity. So national banks and federal savings associations can provide a service like that, provided they manage the risks effectively and comply with the law. Um, and then uh, they also have to, in, uh, further to the second interpretive letter, they also have to show they have adequate controls in place to allow safe and sound conduct of the business. And then the third interpretive letter, there has to be a notification made to their supervisory office of the intention to engage in those activities. Uh, so there's some specific crypto-focused provisions. Federal Reserve uh, has a new requirement for all banking organizations it supervises to notify the Fed if they're planning to engage in crypto asset related activities, including the custody of crypto digital assets. Uh, and before doing so, um, they obviously have to check the law, um, see whether filings are required, have appropriate systems and controls in place uh, to be safe and sound. FDIC uh, requires per prior notice um, uh, where any FDIC supervised institution seeks to engage in a crypto related activity. Next slide. And then Singapore, um, there's a Payment Services Act, which um, is being amended, the process is being amended, uh, providing for digital payment token services, um, uh, the provision of those in Singapore to be licensed, uh, including the custody of digital payments tokens, and that would include, you know, everything one might expect in terms of Bitcoin, Ether, and so on. And then um, Ethereum. And then uh, licensed entities are regulated for AML purposes with additional requirements for large institutions. And then the Financial Services and Markets Act, which is very similar to the UK one, with a bit of a loophole in it, because when it was transposed into Singapore, uh, as some may know, um, the definition of contract for difference, which hinges on property of any description, uh, the draftsperson in Singapore referenced it to other already regulated assets such that under the current FISMA in Singapore, crypto um, derivatives are not regulated. I mean, it's a very nuanced, high-level proposition, of course, and there are all sorts of qualifications to that, including under the Payment Services and, um, Amendment Act, potentially. But um, that's an interesting uh, sort of glitch, if you like, in the transposition uh, in that, on that front. I think that's probably enough to frame things. I mean, the 10,000-foot conclusion from this is there isn't much specific crypto regulation. Um, there are ways in which crypto businesses are caught under traditional regulation if it fits into traditional constructs or it's a security in the US or whatever. But um, for pure crypto, uh, the world's main regulators and legislators need to develop a regime for crypto and cryptocurrency, uh, crypto custody businesses. Dominic. Well, thank you, Barney, for that um, that very helpful uh, quick review of the of the regulatory re requirements. And I'm sure that our panelists will will have some things to to say about that. But I, as I'm sure the audience will will have some questions to ask as well. Um, but I'd like to to uh, unless the panelists wants to say something immediately, I'd like to move the discussion forward a bit by actually looking at at custody uh, as a as a service itself. And as I said in, in, in my opening remarks, and as these regulatory, various regulatory measures indicate, you know, this is a bit different uh, from traditional custody. Uh, the risks are different. Uh, and I, I've been thinking a little bit about this 
and wondered what those different risks are. Uh, and I, I, I've drawn up a little list of them here. Um, the transactions are irreversible for one thing. Uh, I've been in this industry long enough to know that uh, reversing transactions is a fairly commonplace practice in the traditional securities markets. Uh, uh, so you can't do that here. Uh, you have novel risks like bridges between the different blockchain protocols, and these prove to be vulnerable to uh, to hacks. Um, with blockchain-based uh, networks, of course, you have to deal with the risk of a 51% attack, i.e. hostile takeover of the network, uh, which can be exploited to the financial advantage of, of people. You have oracles on which the smart, smart contracts uh, uh, rely. Uh, those may be delivering data which is inaccurate or more likely data which is late. Uh, and so an action is taken which is not uh, strictly in accordance with the conditions of that smart contract. Smart contracts themselves, um, although they're now being audited, are, of course, also open to malicious attacks of various kinds because they are, after all, software code. Uh, you have hard forks, um, which potentially create whole new assets, uh, which can undermine the integrity of, of the original issue. You have airdrops, these distribution of free digital assets to digital wallets, um, those can clearly be, be uh, and have been in some cases, fraudulent. Uh, uh, and last but not least, particularly in the DeFi area, the decentralized finance markets, you do have these flawed governance models uh, where disproportionate influence is wielded by a small class of token holders. So my, my first question is um, to, our, uh, to our digital asset custodians, and perhaps Yannick, you could deal with this first, and then um, Jack, and I'm sure Liz would have some comments on this. Um, how do you go about um, analyzing what these risks are and how do you go about mitigating and managing them on behalf of your clients? Uh, Yannick, you go first and remember you're on mute. That's a good one indeed. <laughs> uh, hi, everybody. Um, yeah, I think I would go with the multiple risks, as you mentioned, but I think the one I would like to, to really particularly emphasize this time is maybe what we have seen on the recent events of all the, the, the FTX collapse and so on, which is basically fundamentally, I believe that many market participants now recognize that um, the segregation duties between the custodians and the market infrastructure is clearly in the interest uh, and is has an important risk if, if it's not sufficiently segregated. And I think this is extremely important um, that you cannot have the asset custodized by the same entity who also provide the pricing and the execution of the, the, the management of the trade, of the, the execution services, I would say. So uh, it, it could have catastrophic consequences uh, with the coming out of the asset of the funds, with also the, 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 um, the asset of the clients and the asset of the services. So I think the segregation for me is, is key, and that's the reason why a traditional custodians and actually custodians in digital assets uh, could offer this truly independent uh, safeguard. So I think that's one of the risks we can have. We can talk about technically how we do this risk and et cetera, but I think that's to me the most important thing now is, and the market have shown the, 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 the importance of that. Mm -hmm. So the, the importance of being uh, independent. Uh, Jack, you, you look ready to-, to Yeah, I, I, would, um, I, I would, increase the the uh, drum roll on the point Yannick made. I think that's of critical importance. It's why we set up our business to be exclusively focused on custody and not have a complementary, quote unquote, uh, markets business that trades and makes markets and lends and borrows and rehypothecates client assets, et cetera. 
Um, Chairman Gensler here, the SEC has been vocal about the importance of segregating those duties. And we believe that that is certainly going to come home uh, to roost as regulation comes into this space. The other uh, risk factor that I think is perhaps the most important, and, and you touched on it a little bit, um, Dominic, with the irreversibility of the transactions, is that that many of the digital assets, certainly cryptocurrencies, uh, are really bearer instruments. And so if you think about that, in many ways, it's a step back to the past where you know, there was a stock certificate and whoever owned that certificate had rights to the asset. Uh, in the same way, uh, cryptocurrencies are um, bearer instruments and the technology required to protect those is really the crux of what many of us in this industry have built in terms of our technology offering. Because it's of a digital nature, it's opened all sorts of, of um, threat vectors that you articulated. And so that really uh, requires a, a significant amount of resources in building out the technology. I don't think this is the right form for talking about how we do that, but essentially you've got a, a, a alphanumeric key that is your uh, proof of ownership. And what we do is shard that key up and, and um, secure it in, in a number of different ways, biometrics, blockchain technology, hardware, software, et cetera, and keeping that safe. Thanks, Jack. Uh, Liz, perhaps some thoughts from you. I may have done you a huge injustice earlier in, in claiming that your focus is really on, on the DeFi area, but you've heard what Yannick said about the importance of, of being independent. You've heard Jack talk a little bit about the actual techniques used to keep um, customer assets safe as an independent custodian. You're operating in a slightly, with a slightly different set of institutional clients. Um, did all that sound a bit strange to you? Um, and maybe tell us a little bit about uh, the type of clients you're acting for uh, and how you're managing and mitigating risks for them. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, um, Dominic. So, yeah, I, I think... Um, Representing uh, MetaMask Institutional as a platform in this discussion, um, I have been in the fortunate position of speaking to over 50 digital asset custodians in the last um, two years. You know, since the beginning of uh, DeFi summer, we've 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 been in a position to be able to delve into the nuances of key management solutions and governance policies and multi-user um, uh, permissions and segregations of roles and responsibilities um, with, with practically everyone um, you know, that is seriously looking to solve for that for their customers. So um, on one hand, the retail wallet is about empowering the end user to essentially take custody and ownership of your assets um, without having to rely on an intermediary to do that. Um, on the institutional side, things are, uh, are more complex. There are operational controls and, um, and, and um, regulations that need to be abided by. And that was the original premise whereby we decided to create this separate product line. But MMI, while it provides the um, maybe the, the more simple uh, younger organization to you know be self um, you know self-custodial um, using the platform, we are right now integrated with 11 custodians globally um, that are actively thinking about topics around the security and, and permissions. Um, you are correct in saying that um, there is no standardization right now in how you think about each of these aspects. Um, we 
I think it's still so early, you know, when I when I hear um, Barney's presentation um, and so some of the comments made, you know, we when you think about institutional allocation to Web3, um, this is so early. We're almost in a sandbox environment. We're not at a stage to be able to say this is a whole solution that can be used to 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 um, to act on behalf, uh, you know, a fiduciary agent on behalf of an entity that is looking to do the things that they are used to doing in traditional uh, financial market infrastructure. Um, the comment about the importance of sec segregating markets-related operations with custody is a extremely um, important one. But yet, when you look at the largest global custodians in the world, they all have markets operations they're all providing um you know leverage and um you know hypothecate and 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 repo um services so maybe this is a way whereby we you know react and say well let's um we don't understand this well enough the customers don't understand this well enough and so let's begin like that but you you know when you turn around and see you know i i see plenty of examples in traditional markets where that's not the case at all so we, i i take a slightly different approach in that um it is still very early um this is this technology is rapidly maturing um bridges for example are extremely fragile um you know so it's it's tough to regulate a um a technology that is so nascent where the business use case has not been validated sufficiently enough and organizations that are showing up to experiment um are not sure if they will continue to do what they're trying to do I also see that um, the kinds of customers that digital asset custodians are trying to cater to uh, vary significantly from what the traditional customer segment is for a traditional custodian. And um, you are seeing a merging of what ownership looks like. Um, how do we um, benefit from the bearer? So the, the digital scarcity and the bearer qualities of a digital asset token, we are seeing um, not only um, sort of the trading and investment community show up, but we are seeing brands and um, uh, sort of traditionally companies that are great at community engagement show up to decide, well, how do we think about uh, digital ownership and community engagement in the same way a fund is thinking about, well, how do we create the most efficient distribution capabilities for financial products? And things are blurring. So I, I would, yeah, I, I, my, my, my response to questions that require um, so much thought and clarity on what we're doing um, would be that it's still very early and we're still in, um, you know, a sandbox stage. Mm -hmm. If I, if I may, I would like to, to comment a few, few points, Dominic, if, if you allow me. Um, I think I just want to echo what Jack was mentioning about uh, the importance of having the security maintenance. I, I think uh, that's very important. And I think a, a custodian is not only going to safeguard the digital assets, but is going to be also the responsible for the security maintenance 
uh, and it's a complex and it's burdensome. Uh, I think uh, Financial Times in September mentioned that over 6.2 billion uh, worth of digital asset has been uh, hacked from scammers and etc. So, it, it, and that's clearly something which will be, uh, I would say, a, a digital asset custodian best in class uh, if he can provide the security measures. That will be the right answers in addition to the segregations. And I think that's where uh, Jackie were also uh, go, going to. to. To the point of, um, of Liz, um, I think the, the I, I do agree on, on, on various points you mentioned. The, the, the only thing I will say is, I think we have to be extremely careful. The institutional's uh, clients target, they will move to uh, the digital asset, the cryptocurrency, when they will have a proven or, or, I would say, a clarification from the regulations. It's extremely important. The regulators try to clarify a little bit who will regulate what. We know there are some debates. Is it crypto? Is it security? Is it any money? So it's very important because the institution will go with a reputable custodian only if the custodian is fitting the same or having the same risk adverse uh, appetite, the same control framework, and more or less the same regulation requirement and obligations. And I think it's an important choreography. So yes, you're right, there is a various actors who are interesting and potentially the product and response might, might vary. But actually, for the reason we just tried to elude here, the security is one aspect, but also the regulatory framework is going to bring or to stop the initiatives or the investment from the large institutionals. And you do have corporates who are interesting for the treasury perspective, but again, they, they, they want probably to have the same security and the safety than they are doing with the traditional banking finance uh, that they have today. And Yannick, what about uh, Liz's point about the, the major global custodians actually have a, a, the same conflict of interest, which um, we were kind of criticizing uh, the digital exchanges for you know Coinbase, um, <laughs> you, you trade on there, and then you custody with, with with with. You challenge me on this one, and I'm and you, I'm you challenge, and I'm particularly well, challenging you on I'm, this one. Yeah, yes, I'm challenging you on that one, and I'm also challenging you on something else, which um, which Barney didn't raise, but I did bring up in my opening remarks that this SEC letter saying you've got to put these digital assets on your balance sheet, and you know Coinbase went ahead and did that. Uh, now that was a huge departure from the normal. Uh, global custody industry. These are client assets that don't appear on your balance sheet. That's the attraction of the industry. It's an off-balance sheet industry. What are your thoughts on those those two questions? That actually, because you're working, you know, you're associated with these, these global custodian banks that have execution desk, treasury management desk, sec lending desk, you know, collateral management, even asset management arms, and so on. Are you not in exactly the same position as the the digital exchange? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm. I would say I'm coming from the banking industry and more especially from global custodian industry. Uh, uh, my background, I would say that I don't really share that view because actually you have a clear segregation of duty between the custodians and the uh, what we call the, the front office, which is all the market practices. Although it may be under the same umbrella, the same entity, it's clearly separate business units, separate department, and clearly separate management. And there is clearly a Chinese wall between the both, uh, the, 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 the both products, if you see that as a product. So yes, you could have been Kiparibar uh, doing the same things, but there will be separate entities, security services, 
and uh, the front aspect. Sorry, Jack, I don't want to. Well, I, I just want to add a, add a very critical uh, distinction here, um, Dominic, to that point is global custodial banks, let's just take a BNY Mellon or a State Street. Yes, to Liz's point, they offer custody, trading, collateral management, et cetera. However, they're not exchanges. That's the big difference here. Coinbase is an exchange, and I'm not I'm not speaking ill of Coinbase, but they're an exchange and a custodian. Gen Gemini, an exchange and a custodian. Um, you know, Binance, an exchange and a custodian. And in the case of Coinbase, at least some of their accounts uh, are in customer accounts are held in an omnibus account at the exchange doing self-custody. That's where you start to get into the fundamental differences between TradFi. New York Stock Exchange is not a custodian. BNY Mellon is not an exchange. Fundamentally different segregation of duties. That segregation of duties does not exist in the digital asset arena. And Jack, do you have a view on my this SEC letter saying stick these assets on your balance sheet, please? Am I barking up an irrelevant tree by asking that question? Was it well, I have a view on most things here in this comment. <laughs> okay, so. give us a view on this then. Yeah, I think you're you're referring to SAB 121 and I think it is going to uh in the in the at least near to, to medium term be a real deterrent for the large global custodial banks getting into the space uh, just because it becomes impractical. Um I think it's something that as education increases and regulators get more comfortable with the space that that may be chipped away with but right now I view it as a deterrent for the big global custodial banks to get into the space it just simply does not scale. Uh, and and um, so it'll be interesting to see how this develops, but for all intents and purposes, I think it's gonna be a retardant to uh, the, the large sell side firms really getting into the space in a meaningful way. Yeah, I, I, do, I, do, I do completely share your, your view, Jack, on this. I think Basel is working on this and to try to see how practically and operationally it, can, it could happen. But I think it's clearly it's going to bring a lot of cost and capital requirement, which will potentially just simply not be feasible uh, for exactly the reason that Jack mentioned. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's and today you don't ask the custodian, the traditional fund and custodian, to reflect on the balance sheet uh, the securities that that they have. So, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tony. Seems to me, from a legal and regulatory perspective, it's at odds with what where we're trying to get to um, in terms of designing a legal and regulatory framework that matches what the market seeks to do, but enhances the safety for the to the satisfaction of government governments and regulators. Essentially, is is the task at hand, and um, trying to put what is an inherently incredibly quickly scalable asset on people's balance sheets will effectively mean that um, the, the business is dispersed. And I think that intrinsically makes it more risky. Plus, if it's on someone's balance sheet and they're doing other bits of business, um, then that, that um, potentially exposes it to other bits of business. I'm not saying any of the people doing it now are doing those things. Um, I think it is possible to be an exchange and have a custody business in an affiliate. I mean, there, there are possible ways through on a lot of these issues. Um, in a way, we're reinventing the wheel on stuff in the financial regulatory world that people have been thinking about for generations and have their sophisticated solutions to. So as I see it, we're in the second or beginnings of the third stage of a three-stage process. The first stage was this is all 
very complicated. Lots of smart people were innovating away and writing computer programs, and it was a trust us phenomenon. And out of all the thousands of businesses out there, there are some that clearly merit that trust. There are some which is where it's more questionable. Um, and, and the issue with that is that the user doesn't quite know because these relationships involve technologies which are opaque and activities on the part of the services provider which are inherently opaque and difficult to audit and verify. The trustless element, you know, proposition only takes you so far and we're getting to the limits of that. It's been isolated to a large degree from the financial markets, which has ensured so far at least that the ripples are not being felt um, or the waves are not being crashing against or in, inside the walls rather of, of the system uh, in any in a way that seems alarming. So so far so good. When Then the second phase, which we're either in or emerging from, is regulatory arbitrage and competition, um, which in fact existed in the um, global arena, particularly even till 2007-8, um, after you know, which the EU scheme um, was amended to eradicate that so far as possible by introducing the ESAs, the supervisory agencies, to try and harmonise interpretations and avoid arbitrage within the EU, and that's ongoing work in progress within the EU. And then internationally, there the FSB efforts on systemic risk. But I think, nevertheless, there's an element to which everyone's the countries are beauty parading their regulatory. Um, schemes um but the third wave is a mature system uh, where it's thoughtfully regulated question then is how do you do it i think you need to differentiate all pass through all the different types of thing that one's looking at and there it does require discussion with the with uh, folks like the ones here to get it right and, and of, but i nevertheless would say i think there's a difference legally between tokens which represents an underlying asset um, where you're custodying the token or custodying the token and the underlying asset and immobilizing it, um, and then something where the token is the asset. Um, and then I think there's a difference between a service, which is the custody, if you like, of a private key from a service where the actual asset is, it becomes that of, and it's registered in the name of, effectively becomes the under the ownership of the custodian. So I think those are some basic legal distinctions which would then ripple through into the design of any scheme. And it's real time that the regulators, as I've mentioned, looking at doing this, particularly the UK are going next. The EU have not really done original thinking from it. They've taken um, MIFID II and the prospectus directive and tweaked it for what was thought to be a crypto industry um, of a little while back now. By the time it comes into effect, I think it's going to be out of date. So this requires, because it's so developing so quickly, it requires some real-time thinking. And the US, of course, are engaged in the same thinking as well. In terms of the issues then, I mean, at the moment, we've got the extent of liability around all the issues you raised, Dominic, which are very concerning issues being addressed through contractual terms, largely on standard forms. Um, and you know, to some degree negotiable. Um, now, the regulators, when they come in, will seek to determine um, what they're regulating, which goes to the point I made about tokens and the underlying, um, and the security keys and so on. They will um, determine um, who they're regulating and where. So I think there's going to be much more interest in governance, you know, and, and systems and controls, which will have to be largely within a single legal jurisdiction, you know, where the people are generally, because regulators don't like regulating something where the key people are somewhere else. Um, 
And I think they're going to have to get to grips with these risks. And that will involve prescribing certain contractual terms. It will involve um, prescribing certain processes and verification pr um, processes in particular, it seems to me, because a lot of this is beyond, I don't think one could expect the regulators themselves to be able to verify this. And then finally, all these supervision, supervision, which is missing from the dialogue at the moment, but no regulatory regime is credible unless there are very, very high-end supervisors in a significant number with all the necessary disciplinary knowledge to be able to know enough of what they're doing to do it credibly. And, and unless there's that, this is it's a sort of it's paper, it's a paper tiger. So that all will need putting into the uh, into place. And then the final piece of the jigsaw puzzle, which I'm sure will need to be thought through. And of course, you know, this will be designed by the regulators after listening to the interest industry and looking at what's going on, not by the industry, because the Foxconn won't be allowed to design the henthouse as it were. But I mean, the regulators will want to ensure, because they're accountable to parliaments and then taxpayers, that businesses can fail safely, because in the financial services world, businesses like in any other industry sector can fail. And that means looking at asset protection. And that's not just the custody piece, but it, in particular, the identity verification of who's being able to give instructions to the custodian, because you could end up in the same place if you had a custodian if there is um, um, insufficient discipline around who can give instructions and are those people only uh, the only ones able to give instructions to move the assets. So I think it's a very heavy lift because it apply, involves applying a lot of traditional ways of thinking to a new environment. A lot of thinking is going on, but there are issues emerging all the time. The point you may make about bridges and oracles and so on, I mean, these are novel points to which there needs to be a solution that's objectively satisfactory to people who aren't in the tech world, but nevertheless is verified by people who are. And, and I think, so throwing up these problems is great. I think the solutions are going to be designed in a way that is then to the satisfaction of the regulators who then are in the position to explain them in sufficient simplicity to people not in the industry in their parliaments, so that people, you know, representatives of the people feel comfortable that this is actually credible. At that point, I actually think this is a reverse solicitation business, largely, and it'll be one single legal and regulatory regime that is trusted throughout the world. And that trust will be earned only, not on the basis, in fact, largely of the rules written on the page, but because of the people that implement it day to day and apply it, being sufficiently thoughtful and nuanced in how they do it, but nevertheless sufficiently accurate. Thanks, Barney. Can I pick up one of the one of the threads which which Barney has has identified there, which is there is this uh, risk that regulation and what is happening in the marketplace are, are are falling out of joint, and they're falling out of joint in a very fragmented way across um, a number of jurisdictions. But there is also this process of convergence going on. You know, we've seen um, crypto brokers and crypto exchanges acquiring you know, digital asset custodians over the last 18 months or so. At the same time, we've seen all the major, virtually all the major global custodians starting to work with, with vendors of digital asset custody technology, you know, with the Fireblocks and, and Metacos and Coppers of the world. So clearly they are doing that because they see a client demand to buy digital assets. But I suspect those digital assets are probably quite a narrow class. We're talking here of cryptocurrencies in particular. They might be interested in Bitcoin and Ether, but not much beyond that. Uh, do we do we think here that um, that there is a convergence going on uh, at the business end, 
which is not being matched by what's happening on the regulatory side. In other words, cryptocurrencies are still out there, kind of unregulated, if we like, um, whereas tokens are being found to be securities and being regulated as such. Is that a fissure uh, which we need to be concerned about, Jack? I think it's an excellent question. And I think it's reflective of a broader view that the large traditional institutions have on both the buy and the sell side around the future tokenization and digitization of assets. It really has nothing to do with cryptocurrencies other than sharing the underlying technology upon which the, the crypto industry exists, namely blockchain technology or distributed ledger technology. We have, in addition to our custody business, we own the leading fund administrator in the digital asset space, MG Stover, and we have a third project called Atomic Net, which is building a cross-chain atomic settlement network. And that affords us the opportunity to talk to a lot of uh, global uh, asset servicing firms and, and large asset managers. And that view around future tokenization is only increasing in, in um, velocity. And I think that's what you're seeing when you read the news about these alliances that are being formed with the Fireblocks and Coppers uh, and Medicos of the world. Um, I think there's a consensus view that cryptocurrency may or may not, which may, might sound oxymoronic, but may or may not have a future role to play, but stable coins, yes, tokenization, yes, you know, underlying technology that will have a profound impact on the operating system of capital markets going forward, yes. And so these organizations are building infrastructure, anticipating that, and it's much less about whether or not Bitcoin and Ethereum have a, a, a meaningful long-term uh, place in a client, in an institutional client portfolio. Mm -hmm. Liz, as as um, and, and before I put this question to Liz, I just remind the audience, you know, do feel free to send questions and comments to us. We'd be disappointed if we don't uh, hear from you. Uh, and bear in mind, we're into our last 15 minutes of this discussion. So if, you've got, if you're burning to ask a question, now's a good time to do it. But Liz, as Jack points out, you know, we're going to, I bandy this term around digital assets, but it covers a whole host of things, you know, cryptocurrencies, native tokens, um, you know, asset-backed tokens, stable coins, and perhaps eventually CBDCs. But in the kind of business, the kind of organizations which you are talking to to sell your services to, what are the the digital assets that they are looking to invest in? Is it very, very focused on on the native token world in DeFi, or are people looking for combinations of asset-backed native tokens, stable coins, cryptocurrencies? I mean, what assets are they looking to custody with you? It's um yeah, so I'll um I think so. I'll remind you again. So MMI is not a custodial service. We're a platform that integrates with several custodians. Um, the um, to, to to in short uh, to answer your question, we see demand from customers to do uh, both. So um, how how do we think about the security and the operational controls of a portfolio of native crypto assets? Um, as well as the question comes around, well, if I'm going to issue this token, that is a security token, it is going to be registered with a transfer agent, and will have a broker dealer, um, can any of the custodians that are available on uh, MetaMask Institutional today, custody those? And, and that question um, is rarely one about the technology. Uh, we can support all ERC tokens, uh, be it fungible or non-fungible. Um, but, but more a question of 
is the custodian uh, licensed and regulated to be able to take custody of that security token? Um, that that tends to be one of the discussions, but I do um, agree with Jack's sentiment that the broader discussion is around can the the blockchain technology be used as a more efficient distribution mechanism um, to engage with audiences. Um, this could be for financial products. This could be for engagement with brands. Uh, and that's where you start seeing, you know, Nike's announced using um, our, our, our solution with BitGo on Polygon to engage with their audience. Uh, and similarly, we're seeing high profile brands do the same. And so to me, this technology, it doesn't matter what the underlying is. Um, it is some form of ownership, um, be, be it fungible or non-fungible, um, be it giving some kind of rights to being a part of a community. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the, um, the technological advances that need to be built to secure um, operational control and asset integrity and thinking about the, the, the novel security threats that are specific to handling tokens on this, um, on this rail, um, no doubt have to be solved. And, and what we tend to focus on at this point is less about um, jurisdictional coverage because it, it often feels like there are just some basic things that need to be put in place to empower an organization to know what they're doing, what are they about to sign, uh, how do they monitor what they're doing in Web3 um, that just needs to be solved for technologically before the business use case can be developed. If the discussions around security tokens and the consortias forming around that uh, with various underlines have been, uh, it's been a point of discussion for several years, you know, um, 2017-18, um, we almost always began with private permissioned um, and, and a discussion around consortias. Now the discussion is around, well, let's look at experimenting on different uh, blockchains, be it a layer one or a layer two, uh, but how do we solve for security, privacy, scalability, um, the scalability of identity, the portability uh, of your, or your identity um, that is established one time in a books and records way, but then how do you create a, um, a design framework for this to be able to travel uh, across various innovations in Web3 um, are some of the challenges that we think about, um, you know, the, um, and that absolutely need, like, I guess, um, coming back to, you know, my original answer, of we, we see both, however, it's still so early. And uh, there are still so many just basic non-functional requirements that need to be thought through. Uh, and to the satisfaction of the regulators, that's the final bit of the jigsaw puzzle, because without that, none of this is going to be buttressed. Uh, you know, I mean, there might be people prepared around the world in some places to write rules for it, but it doesn't mean anything unless it's actually backed up. And, and that will involve verification including by sort of um specialists that can that can um invasively test and stress test the technology to make sure it does what it says on the tin under all circumstances um and that to be credible is going to be have have to be done 
by I would imagine a very small number of people in the world who have the credibility to 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 verify that point. And then obviously the question is, could anyone change it without your knowledge? And so, so there may need to be an ongoing verification process. And then there's the valuation of these assets. You know, has has anyone to keep good track of those? How do you keep track of making sure the records are okay? Or can the owner somehow through the blockchain look in through some separate independent process to verify the custodian, you know, quiz custodian says custodian who's, who's going to check that they've still got what they think they have, or, or do they just rely on the custodian? And is there anyone that's trusted sufficiently for very large amounts? And I think this is going to be the drive to more industry convergence because I don't think there are enough people with the credibility to keep producing propositions that fly, quite aside from whether or not people are prepared to use them. I think, and the other aspect of what I, you're saying, which I, I think is relevant, is this is the financialization of the world in a way because all of the legal entitlements really in the world can be packaged up and tokenized and traded. And they can be traded under a single legal jurisdiction and regulatory jurisdiction. I don't think we're going to, we need to wait for the whole world to agree on a single rule book. I think it's ever going to happen in our lifetimes, if at all. Uh, I think it, it's going to be different from that. It'll be consumer driven. But this financialization involves nuanced analysis across each um, new product area to see what needs adjusting to regulate that, because the answer for property interests won't necessarily be there, which are then traded on a register, won't necessarily be, uh, and a registered won't necessarily be the same as the answer for things that are unregistered or in, in things that are, um, have an objective value that can be verified on a genuine exchange that's regulated as such uh, versus something that's OTC and genuinely OTC and not benchmarked, uh, benchmarkable. And will there be OTC or is it possible then to join up the, all the trades and, and gather that data so that in effect you don't need an exchange, you just look at the pricing that's of trades? Yeah, I, I would uh, just say that, you know, the technology needs to be built first to be verified. It's still being built. And I think that's, I think, the, the big disconnect I have here in terms of some of the questions and, and um, considerations are for things that just haven't been built yet. I, I, could, I could go and ask 20 custodians today about what is their definition of true self-custody, and each of them will come back with different answers of what true self-custody means. Right. Um, but, but someone's asked a question which goes to the heart of it all, which is what are the it's effectively it's saying, would people trust a crypto custodian quickly enough and sufficiently enough to go with a pure crypto custodian on the basis of a perception of a greater understanding and knowledge of the business? Or are they effectively going to gravitate back to well-known <laughs> traditional custodians, but who have developed you know, yes, let, let me let me ask that question in full because it's a good one uh, from Vicente Lazar. Um, what do you think are your competitive advantages in comparison to other digital asset custody platforms under development by traditional market infrastructures and exchanges? This is considering that these market infrastructures and exchanges have built trust and business relationship for decades now, and therefore offer easier access to institutional sell and and buy side players. Um, I guess Yannick, your answer to that would be that you, you you've grown out of the the traditional established yeah, but it's 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 a good question and i will like maybe there are multiple angles to respond to these questions i think you can have the the angle from a 
I would say, compliance and trustworthy of the custodians, because clearly you want to partner or you want to put your asset with a reputable uh, entity because you need to satisfy also your own risk management framework. So having a bank, a traditional finance or traditional custodians, uh, DNA mindset, being very familiar with all the money laundering regulations, all the licensing, all the, the legal aspects is clearly going to give you a certain uh, trust in, in, in this in this thing. So I think clearly traditional finance uh, who has built the technology, who has embraced the, the, the blockchain technology and the crypto asset digital, but having this DNA is clearly a, a, a good um, a, a good asset. I think it's also from a cybersecurity perspective. We, we are just touching a little bit that the custodian is not only digital asset, but also being security uh, aspect. And I think it's important to have someone who has a, a, a regulation reference with control base, well-seated, auditable, certified uh, internationally. So we can talk about ISO uh, standard and all these kind of things. And again, a traditional finance uh, banking custodians will be extremely familiar with that, with the process, will uh, clearly understand. So to me, if I look only from these two angles, uh, you clearly have the answers. And, and, and potentially, this is why you have seen, as you mentioned initially, Bonnie, Mellon, so partnering with Fireblocks or, or Summer Chartered, building Zodia in a partnership. That's clearly the answer to that because we, we are strongly believing that uh, we're bringing the good uh, and what Bernie was mentioning, people have think about decades of regulation, of our structuring, of our management, and from bruises, huh? because clearly we have experiences, bad things in the traditional finance. So we try to not repeat that in this new ecosystem, and, 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 and but at the same time, we want to embrace the digital technology. So I think this is why, clearly, I do believe uh, that traditional uh, bankers or custodians embracing and being extremely innovative and, and understanding the DLT and the blockchain will be the right answers for, for, for that. That's my, that's my view. If I could just add, Dominic, yeah, I mean, we, we share that view around the DNA of traditional finance in our offering, which is critical. What I would add, the two differentiators that do not exist when the, with the traditional players relative to our offering is, A, the, the expertise around this asset class. We've been doing it for years, and uh, it just doesn't exist at the large organizations uh, today. And third of all, the regulatory uh, footprint. We're heavily regulated uh, by New York, in our case, the New York Department of Financial Services. We've got, you know... Many, many state money transmitter licenses were registered with FinCEN as a money services business. And so that should give confidence to institutions to use a service provider like Standard Custody because we're regulated, we've got the expertise, and we've certainly got the security in terms of the product that we've built. Can I ask you to speak the same language? Sorry, sorry. Yeah. I think the, 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 the important thing is you speak the same language. That's right, and, and 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 that's extremely important when you when you discuss with institutionals and you don't have these background experiences or a background understanding and what an institutional wants and what are their requirement and obligation toward their own regulations, that's where you're going to have a conflict. That's right. But Jack, could I ask you if you're a, um, a as Barney said, the OCC has authorized banks to do this business. You're, you're not a bank, as far as I know. Uh, but you are regulated by the NYDFS. You've got these money transmission licenses. If I was a if I was a customer of 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 your organisation, what are the benefits which the way you are regulated confers me? What are you allowed to do, and why is it good for me as a customer? Well, I'm, I'm mindful of the time here, so very quickly, the OCC, the federal bank uh, regulator, has only allowed three charters for digital assets, and they've really curtailed those those mandates. So. 
while that is an option, it's not really an option today uh, for most. Um, so that then puts you into a state uh, situation by being a trust company bank. From a regulatory standpoint, we're a qualified custodian. In the US, there's an Investment Advisor Act of 1940 that requires any manager more than 150 million of fiduciary capital to use a qualified custodian, either a broker dealer, a futures commission merchant, or a trust bank. The first two are not options. Those regulators have not given out licenses to do that. So that puts you really, other than these very few uh, selected the OCC, in the quadrant of a, uh, a state bank regulator. And so if you manage more than 150 million, you have to use a qualified custodian. And that that really narrows this. If you wanted to use State Street or Citibank or Goldman Sachs, it's not available. Even if they wanted to do it, uh, which is unclear, they can't do it today. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, our time is almost up, but I'd like to uh, to put Greg Vosper's question uh, to you, um, which has for some reason now disappeared. Where has it gone? I just um, answered oh, it. There it is. Host, hosted custody versus self-hosted are different services. This is one for you, Liz, definitely. Both hosted custodians and self-hosted technology are being reviewed, invested in, or bought by leading banks. Building takes time. Regulation takes time. The same, he says, the same commentary about regulatory said today as two years ago. I quite agree with that. You know, so what's, what's good enough? Um, yeah, and it, I, you know, we don't think that any stack answers every use case, and so that's why you know we want to be able to give widest um, range of key management solutions for organizations in Web three. Um, just, I, I think the nuance here is that the kind of um, custody stack that Jack described so well, without getting into the jargon, is one where. Um, the, the customer is still in complete control of the assets, you know, based on whoever is authorized to give instructions for the transfer. Um, it, it isn't as simplistic as um, sort of custody models in the past where collateral can be then uh, lent out, you know, and, and there is no clear understanding of ultimately who the owners are. And so this technology affords us far more control of digital ownership. And, and then you get into the nuances of self-hosted or, or third-party hosted and you know who has operational controls uh, for the assets. So I have dropped my email address in there. Um, you know, we we have 12 on the platform today and um and several more in the pipeline. Um, so we're more than happy to give you um, um an agnostic overview of, of the different solutions out there in the market. Okay, Greg, that's an invitation to get in touch with Liz. Uh, we're going to have to stop in a minute, but I'd like to ask each of you a rather naughty question before you before I let you go, um, which is this: when I was when I was researching this topic and thinking about it, it struck me that actually, uh, even the cryptocurrency industry, which has been characterised by thefts, hacks, frauds, often on a gigantic scale, uh, as far as I know, I don't think any digital asset uh, it, it has actually been um, stolen from from out of custody. The industry has actually proved surprisingly robust uh, in protecting um, customer assets. So, um, Yannick, are we um, are we worrying about something which doesn't really need to be to be worried about? Uh, are regulators worrying about something it doesn't need to be worried about? No, we, I think we need to be worried about for various reasons. Uh, and as I said, uh, you know, if you are uh, if you look at what's happening, the, the hacking, when you confuse and you commingle the assets and you don't have this clear ownership uh, and what Jack was mentioning between the exchange, being acting as an exchange or being in the custodians, 
this is where you have the risk of your assets being lost because of a hack or because of a fraud from a, a CEO who has a, has an ego uh, that's potentially bigger than anyone else. The, 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 the point is, if you have a real custodians, as we described, then if you have a secure environment with a right protocol, again, audited, certified, and et cetera, yes, you will clearly prevent normally as much as possible the loss of his asset while granting the ownership that what Liz was mentioning about the technology, because we clearly give, continue to give the ownership to the real owner of the asset. And that's where the traditional finance doesn't provide. And, and, and that's to me the biggest thing. Now the question is, of course, everything is traceable. So meaning that the regulators is expecting also more vigilance and more actions to prevent financial crime, for instance. And, 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 and therefore, it required much more energy. It required certain risk-based approach because we cannot, although it's traceable, we cannot cancel the risk. And I think this is something where the regulators is maybe not enough clear yet. It's a risk-based approach that we do in traditional finance. And it's not because the blockchain offers this full traceability that the risk is canceled. I think that's where we need to be worried about. Otherwise, you will kill, you will kill the innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so w- what about that, um, Jack? Um, Yannick is saying, think, is, this all, is this all about process, compliance, control, procedure, uh, and actually not a technical issue at all, the safe custody of digital assets? Well, I think it's clearly both. I mean, we spend an enormous amount of time with our regulator educating them about our technology and about our offering. And because of, of the digital nature of the asset class that we're discussing, technology is embedded in in every part of what we do. There's a human process, there's a workflow, but so much of it is technology driven that our regulators are gonna have to get their heads around it. And as to the hack question, the majority of hacks that have taken place over the last couple of years have happened either at exchanges or at self-custodial venues. They're not happening, certainly at regulated uh, third-party custodians. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Jack. Um, uh, Liz, um, my last word for you, you're trying to build this, this ecosystem um are you am i right to think that from a technical point of view this is not something that needs to be worried about it's much more about what types of people you admit to your ecosystem and what their processes their procedures their audit controls and the rest of it are Yes, certainly um, the aspect you talk about, the due diligence of um, just the operational excellence of of actors involved. But I will highlight um, there are um, unique security threats specific to this asset class and technology. Um, I'm reminded of the time where a fund that was just getting set up um, by mistake sent a high value asset to um, a destination that they were not originally intending to send to. The destination was not even an individual or organization's wallet address. It was a smart contract. And so even though there was an attempt to reach out to the creators of the smart contract to say, well, can you just please send this back to to the senders? It was not possible because that particular smart contract call was not supported. And there you had loss of asset um overnight and no one could do anything about it so it you know there are mistakes that can happen and um there is a lot that needs to be done about um, not just the hacks but just making sure there aren't mistakes uh you know user user mistakes you know there, there's a 
there's a responsibility that comes when you say you are in complete control of um, of your assets. So um, there's still a considerable amount of work that needs to be done in terms of the regulations, the, the operational framework and what's built to make this truly, um, you know, bulletproof as a, as a solution. Mm -hmm. Actually, and actually a real custodians with a real address management will also prevent this kind of example you mentioned of the wrong address. Uh, because if you have detection scenarios, if you have a certain behavior rules, you could potentially prevent that because absolutely right, you are the owner of the assets or you're also the owner of the mistake. So having the third party custodians make you a little bit more secure on that aspect because you will have a kind of a four eyes, a four eyes, four pair eyes of controls underneath. So that's very important. Okay, thanks. Sir. We must stop in a bit. But a last word from you, Sorry. Barney, from everything which you've everything which you've you've heard. Uh, do do you feel that regulation and regulators understand and are proceeding in the right direction in this area? I do. I think um, I think they're proceeding apace. It needs to be considered um, and all of the um, specific nuances of digital custody need to be picked up and addressed in rules and then subjected to supervision. So what Jack's describing with TFS is a nice start. I think we need to, 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 to evolve that across the world in the major jurisdictions and um, find ways in which things to be, can be verified to the satisfaction of, of regulators. Um, it's great that things haven't gone wrong if your research is right, Dominic, uh, so far, but I don't think in regulation of something of this importance, uh, we can take that much comfort from that, unfortunately. Thank you, Ben. I think we will now really have to stop there. We've run over time a little bit. I'd like to thank our panelists, uh, Jack McDonald from Standard Custody and Trust Company, uh, Yannick Shirell from Zodia Custody, Barney Reynolds from Shearman and Sterling and Liz Matthew from Mask Institutional. Here at Future of Finance, we'll be taking a break now for Christmas. Uh, uh, we'll be back on the 12th of January uh, to discuss a question which is not unrelated to what we've talked about today, which is, is, is tokenization of privately managed assets a dynamo, a diversion or a dead end? Uh, do join us then if you can. Unlike today, we're expecting it to be a physical in-person event complete with uh, refreshments. Uh, until then, I'd like to wish all our members and followers a very happy Christmas and a prosperous new year. 